as part of uh, this series. Um, in Second Timothy, uh, passing on the baton, we are doing a series of interviews uh, with different members uh, from our church, uh, looking at uh, a little bit about their life story, uh, some of the opportunities uh, they have had, and uh, some of the challenges uh, they have faced as well. Also to sort of look at some of the key moments in life and the good guidance uh, that they have, have received. Um, and hopefully we as, as a church family will be able to pick out some of the, uh, the just those nuggets of, of uh, learning uh, from someone else. So tonight I'm very pleased that uh, Professor Liz Trimble is, has agreed to, to be interviewed. And uh, thank you very much uh, for, for doing that. So, first of all, I just want you to tell us a little bit about uh, your background, your family background, and how you also came uh, to study at Queen's. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say this is supposed to be from the mature members of this assembly. <laughs> and while you've got the right vintage, <laughs> I'd like to say that God has still got hands-on in reforming and reshaping me. So from vintage point of view, fine, <laughs> but not as the finished product. And I come from a farm near Kilkeel and came to Queen's from a very, very small fellowship, probably less than 20. And so when I was coming to Queen's, one of my extended family said, look, get into the Christian Union in Freshers' Week. And I did that. And for me, that was, I probably would say, an epiphany. Because for the first time, I had Christian friends of my own age, and I was introduced to group Bible study again for the first time. And a core of those people, a half a century later, are still my close friends. We meet for Bible study once a month, still. And uh, many of us have, ex have uh, spent extended time abroad for work, but when we've got back to Belfast, we've rejoined the group. And the last study was on Friday, and we're in Malachi. I, I thought that was absolutely amazing uh, that you're still meeting so, so many years later. And uh, a real uh, tribute to you as a group to keep that, uh, keep that connection. Now, you came to study medicine here at Queen's. And tell us a little bit about your, your career and the opportunities you had uh, and what that led you to. I think if you... Looking back, you can see God's hand in helping at particularly difficult spots in life. And uh, I just attributed to him that at times when things were very, very difficult, he kept me on the straight and narrow, just about. Okay. And uh, I attributed uh, to, to, at the time I was a student, John Stott was starting his writing, and of course, uh, our good friend uh, David uh, in the uh, Queens was also there. So I tribute to these two men that helped to keep me straight when I was not quite sure. Okay. And in terms of in terms of your career, what what did area did you work in? What you know? What opportunities did you have in, as a as a doctor? Right. When I finished at Queen's, I did postgraduate training in clinical endocrinology. And for those who don't know, it's real, all to do with hormones, be it the thyroid or insulin or whatever. Mm -hmm. okay. And when I had finished that, I had a bit of uh, cabin fever. I had very itchy feet, and I most certainly didn't want to settle down. 
So I took off for a while and spent 11 years at the University of Geneva doing work on diabetes. Okay. So you've travelled quite a bit uh, to various countries. And what's, uh, things have you, where have you been and what are the things are you still involved with? Uh, well, on a George Glass scale, I think <laughs> my travelling is just about 5 to 10% of what okay. he did. Uh, for work, I, I went, I've been a couple of times to Japan. I've been to most countries of Europe and frequently to the States. For relaxation, I tend to go to uh, the less travel places, and okay. some of them are a bit edgy. You have, you have a particular interest in Ethiopia. Yes. What, what, what is that connection? Uh, when I retired uh, from medicine officially, I, I was looking for something to do. I have a lot of interests. I'm interested in art and I'm interested in travel, the geographical society, for example. But I needed some aims. And um, I did uh, some training and teaching English as a foreign language, and I also looked for some work in medicine. And so I was able to go with a, a charity that was invited into Ethiopia by the government of Ethiopia. And uh, for the last 10 or more years, I've been doing some work there. And that is, is medical work in, in Ethiopia? Or? Yes. Okay. Um, you mentioned there about your skills in terms of English language and uh, teaching that as a foreign language. You're involved here on a Wednesday. Uh, what motivates you to, to get involved here with our students that come to Belfast as I well? I think the reason is you don't want to go to seed. Okay. <laughs> and I don't have the linguistic skills of certain prominent people in this uh, congregation that will not mention any names. Um, language for me is not so easy. So, for example, uh, although I had to speak uh, fluent in French, but uh, when you go to Ethiopia, it's a Semitic language, uh, Amharic, and uh, there's no way I'll ever learn that, I don't think. Okay. So, but to teach English here was one outlet uh, for me because, you know, the, the longer you're retired from medicine, the less sharp you are in medicine. So I wanted something that I when I felt I had to give up medicine eventually, uh -huh. that I would have something. Um, in terms of, of your involvement here at Crescent, when did you come to Crescent? Um, when I came back from Geneva. When you came back from Geneva. Um, and what year was that? Or 87. That 87. 87. So you've been uh, around for, for a good while. Uh, in terms of, um, if you, as you look back, you mentioned the advice that you got from some of your family, family members. Yes. You know, what sort of key bits of advice can you look back on that made a real difference to your life? Well, there were key moments, um, and that was, that was absolutely key for me because that core people I made friends with then are still my core support group. Mm -hmm. uh, but at other times, I had to make decisions and uh, in my late 20s when I was thinking of going to Geneva I think there are fashions in, Christen in Christendom and at that time it was very fashionable to say that you're immature if you required a Gideon's fleece but I definitely needed a Gideon's fleece because I had a widowed mother at home and uh, whether I should go to Geneva or not God was gracious and gave me a Gideon's fleece when I got to Geneva, there was a fantastic international church 
where there was a great teaching in it. So as well as being excellent for me professionally, it was also uh, very good for me uh, from the point of view of my Christian development. Um, well, thank you very much for uh, sharing with us this evening and for all that you're, you're still involved in and, and the people that you're, you're still meeting with. So okay. thank you very much. Well, good evening. Um, as uh, Adam has said, we're continuing our series in Second Timothy this evening. Uh, and if you're a visitor or you're a guest with us this evening, you're especially welcome. Um, I'm following on tonight from Danny's excellent opening sermon last week. This is the point where I say if you're listening online to stop and go back and listen to that one. For everyone here tonight, we'll have to try and set a bit of context in a moment. Whenever I was uh, younger and just starting out in my career, uh, there was a period of six months where I had a mentor, a trainer, uh, and the setup was really just me and him um, for the six months. And uh, he, he retired a year after I left. Hopefully, there was no cause and effect link there. Um, but he was at the end of 30 years of experience, and uh, every time I went and asked him something, ran something past him, you would get in those words this distilled experience that he had, and you were looking for opportunities to go and ask him something, because what he said was, was absolute gold dust. And you were getting not just knowledge, not just facts, but the sort of things that you, you only learn by experience, by going through it yourself. Uh, and essentially, that is the sort of situation that we find ourselves when we come to Second Timothy. We have Paul, an older and mature Christian, writing to Timothy, who is a younger Christian, not as young as when we first meet him in the New Testament, but a younger Christian. And Paul is passing on words of encouragement words of comfort, and some words of challenge for Timothy as well. And as we come to Second Timothy, we sit and we listen to those words of the older Paul to the younger Timothy. And it's a personal letter. It probably of all of Paul's writing, this is the most personal. Um, and so it's less structured than maybe you're used to with some of Paul's other stuff. It's less discrete units and, and more thoughts that are woven together. And this section that we're coming to tonight, the first half of chapter 2, it runs continuously with chapter 1, so you would think of them as one section. And, and critically, as Danny explained to us last week, Paul is writing to Timothy at a time in his life when it seems like crisis may be too strong a word, what we would maybe in Christendom today say he's, he's gone cold or going cold perhaps standing at a crossroads in his life, looking at his ministry, looking at his future, and, and assessing, is this really worth it? Is this worth keeping going with? And Paul is stirring him up. He's telling him, you need to fan into flame the gift that God has given you. And as we listen to what Paul says to Timothy, there will be implications tonight for us today as well. First and foremost, for those who are like Timothy in a position of Christian leadership, but I am very confident, having spent time in this passage, that there are lessons and principles that all of us as Christians will find beneficial. So let's come to the passage and read it together. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 and starting at verse 1. You then, my child, 
be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God will bless his word to us. And I would encourage you just to keep your Bible open in front of you as we think through what Paul has said to Timothy here. Now, he gives him various pieces of advice, and we're going to work through them and think about them. If there was one common theme that you might pick out in chapter 1 and this part of chapter 2, you find that the word suffering and the idea of suffering crops up more than once. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on. But a lot of Paul's words in this section to Timothy have to do with preparing Timothy to face suffering for the gospel. But the first thing that Paul does in this section is he lays some groundwork for Timothy's ministry. He says, um, perhaps sensing that Timothy is, is uh, needing encouragement or, or, or being overwhelmed or, or perhaps even in danger of burning out, Paul gives him a command. He says, you then, my child, be continually strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He echoes that, my child, from the start of chapter 1 again. Be strengthened, be continually strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? We have a great thing that we can do in evangelicalism where we have these phrases that we say, and we all nod, um, and nobody really knows what they mean. So when I was much younger, people used to tell me about how important it was to walk in the Spirit, and I used to agree that it was, and for a long time I had no idea what that meant. And this is exactly one of those phrases, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Yep, that seem, seems good, Paul. But what does that actually mean? What does Paul expect to happen here? How does he expect those words to strengthen Timothy in any meaningful way? Well, the first thing you have to think of is, what is grace? And some of you might be sitting here tonight thinking, what, what does that word mean? I know a grace. Or, or isn't grace the thing that Christians say before they eat their food? Well, grace, as Christians use it most commonly, is the idea in the New Testament of, of what older people maybe would call unmerited favor. It's the idea of being given something that you don't deserve. In fact, often being given something whenever you deserve the very opposite. It's a free gift 
And critically, it's a characteristic of God. God is known as a gracious God. And by that, we mean that God offers love and redemption, salvation, forgiveness, pours out His blessing, despite the people who are receiving it not deserving it, in fact, deserving the very opposite. And He doesn't do it because they they have worked it up or they have done anything to earn it. He does it because He is gracious. So, when we say God is gracious, when we talk about grace in the New Testament, that's what we're talking about almost always. We're talking about the idea of being given something that we don't deserve. And Paul's already introduced that idea in chapter 1 when he says to Timothy, um, God who saved us, that is, redeemed us, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. How did Paul expect that to strengthen Timothy? Well, he's taking Timothy back to the very moment that he began as a Christian and saying, Timothy, when God saved you, God forgave your sin and restored the relationship with Him, it was because of His grace, not because of anything that you had done to deserve it. It's not like we were sitting at a negotiating table and God offered us salvation and we said, well, we'll give you 10% of all our earnings every Sunday, and we'll do something for charity every six months. That's not what happened. Paul's reminding him that whenever we came into relationship with God, it was on the basis of His grace. We didn't bring anything. It's not because of our works, but because of our grace. And so, Paul is saying, Timothy, remember that. That same reliance on God's graciousness is what should permeate your life of Christian work and ministry and service. It's not your own internal effort or work. Doesn't depend on what you're doing. Doesn't depend on your own innate strength. Remember the grace and be strengthened by it. Rely on it. Because it's very easy for us as Christians to develop perhaps unconsciously this assumption that grace is something that God gave us at the start, and and we experienced grace when we were saved. But actually, you know, He may have taken a bit of a gamble on us at the start, but when we look back at the last 20 years, we've made a pretty good run of things. And actually, that reduces God's grace to nothing more essentially than a mortgage, where God gave us a lump sum at the start, and we paid it off over the rest of our Christian life. That is not what the Christian life is. The Christian life is a daily experience of living in the grace of God, of an ever-increasing, I would argue, awareness of our own inability to bring anything to the table and a reliance on God to provide. And so, Paul is saying, Timothy, be strengthened by that. This doesn't rest on you. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that's an attitude, perhaps, that we need to cultivate in ourselves. I've told you before, uh, I was listening recently to Paul Tripp, and very self-effacingly, he said he starts every day with three prayers. He wakes up and says, Lord, I am a man in desperate need of your help today. Lord, send your help to me. And Lord, give me the wisdom to recognize that help when it comes. And so, We need to remind ourselves that as Christians, we go on not in our own strength, 
but in the grace in which we began. So, Paul starts to Timothy here and says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's a language in Mexico called Ayapaneco, and there are only two people left who speak it. One of them is 65 and one of them is 70, and neither of them speak to each other, but that's beside the point. There's another language spoken only by two elderly people on a a distant peninsula in the north of Russia, another language uh, that only four Aboriginal people speak on two islands off the coast of Australia. And as those people age and eventually die, those languages will be lost forever. Anthropologists frantically scrambling to create dictionaries and get as much of it down, because when those people die, that'll be lost. Closer to home, in the last 10 years in the UK, um, I was reading a list by uh, a group called the British Heritage Craft Association, accepting donations, um, and they said that in the last 10 years in the UK, the craft of cricket ball making, sieve making, and lacrosse stick making have all died out. Parchment making, tanning, and hat block making are all set to follow in the next 10 years. Now, probably you, like me, will not lose a lot of sleep at the fact that we're not making cricket balls in the UK anymore. But there is something terribly sad about that idea of something being lost forever, whether it's the language and all that goes with that, or a skill, perhaps even someone's experience. It's that that thought of something passing out of knowledge. And if you or I perhaps were sitting in Paul's situation, we might be troubled and think, here I am ending my life in jail, in prison, in Rome, shackled to the wall. What if this message that I have carried now for my adult life passes out of knowledge? And yet that is not Paul's attitude. Paul says confidently, I may be bound, but the Word of God is not bound. And part of that is this command that he gives Timothy. He says, you must take what you have learned from me, as the sound words that he talks about, you must take what you have learned from me, and you must pass it on. You must hand it on to others. Those sound words are the idea of Christian truth, of Christian belief, of the Christian gospel. We need to only, we hold them for our lives, but our responsibility is not just to hold them, but to pass them on as well. And the implication here, very clearly, Paul is talking to Timothy in the role of Christian leadership and Christian teaching, and he's talking about passing on that role, passing on the doctrine to others in that role. There's a wider principle as well, but that's what Paul's talking to Timothy about. What you receive from me, you must pass on. And look at some of the guidance that he gives us, and perhaps some of you here this evening are sitting in that role and thinking, how do we know who? How do we know when? How do we know how we do this? What, what do we pass on? Well, if we start at the end of the sentence and work back, the first thing we see is that uh, Timothy was to see people who were, who were able to teach. There has to be some sort of capability. There has to be some sort of capability. You have to be looking, Timothy, round the church in Ephesus and seeing people who you think possibly have some gifting to teach. You have to be looking for capability. But that's not enough, because you also have to be looking for character, because they have to be faithful men. 
that idea of being trustworthy, of being loyal and dependable. So these people have to have capability and they have to have character. And finally, actually, as we come to the start of the sentence, Timothy, at some point you're going to have to put your confidence in them. You need to entrust them. That is an active thing, isn't it? There's going to come a point, Timothy, where you're going to have to step back from the church in Ephesus and come visit me in Rome and leave them there. And that can be very hard to do. I know in my life I have been tremendously blessed by people who at various points in various ways have entrusted me with a responsibility. And so, we need to put confidence as we hand over to people. So, Timothy, look for people with capability, but look for people with character, and at some point you're going to have to put your confidence in them. Keep going. So, then be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you've heard from me, entrust to faithful men. And then, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul is in prison in Rome, not in house arrest this time, in all likelihood in a dungeon, um, as we would understand it. And he's asking Timothy in this letter to come and see him, to come and visit him. And I suspect from the way Paul writes things that Timothy was slightly reluctant. I suspect that Timothy had imagined a scenario where he was going to go to Rome and find Paul chained to the wall with Roman soldiers, and Paul, knowing Paul, would be holding forth about how I'm here for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm here for what I believe, and oh, here's Timothy, my fellow worker who was with me every step of the way, who believes everything I believe. We can just imagine Timothy perhaps not liking the sound of that. Put the handcuffs on now. From Timothy's perspective, the thought of going there and suffering with Paul seemed very real, seemed very sharp. And yet Paul says, Timothy, share in suffering. Paul is very realistic here. It's going to happen. And nothing forces someone, perhaps in Timothy's situation, of swaying to make a decision like facing the reality of suffering. This is when it's going to become real for you, Timothy. You're going to have skin in the game. I wonder if if you've ever been frightened of that sort of scenario as well. Perhaps... uh, you're with people from work, and you meet someone from church, and you think, please don't say anything. Please don't say anything. And they say, oh, looking forward to seeing you at a time of fellowship. And you think, oh, dear. But our shame there is really because we have been exposed, perhaps because we know that we're going to suffer in some way because of that. That those co-workers who thought so well of us now may not think so well of us. They might start to think we're a little strange, might start to think we're a little odd to our fear of suffering. And yet Paul says, Timothy, share in the suffering. And then he goes on to paint these three pictures. And they speak about suffering and sacrifice and character in day-to-day life in his Christian service. And, And he says, if you look at each of these different roles, if you look at each of these different people, this will help you in your Christian ministry. Paul ends it by saying, think on these things and the Lord will give you understanding, which is really him saying, think about these in relation to your own life. 
And you will see how these characteristics, you will see how these realities come into play in your own ministry. First, he says, soldier. Sharing suffering is a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And I think Paul is talking there about single-mindedness. Now, the boys' brigade was the closest I ever came to uniform service. But I think all of us know from common sense that when a soldier is on the front line, they are a soldier all of the time. They don't clock in and clock out. There were, there were men in the, the uh, Revolutionary War in America called Minutemen, and they were members of the, the militia who had taken a vow that from the call went forth, they would be ready to fight in one minute. Their rifle was always to hand, their boots were always on their feet, and when the call went forth, they would be ready in one minute. And they had to live their lives and eat at their family's table and go and work in the fields. But all through that, they couldn't become entangled in them to the point where they couldn't answer their primary responsibility, which was to be ready. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't get entangled in things that distract you from your primary focus. Not necessarily bad things but don't become ensnared in things in your day-to-day -day life that draw your focus away from your primary calling, Timothy. And the saddest example of that, I think, in the New Testament is in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Demas, who Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. So, like a soldier, don't become entangled. Then he says, like an athlete, Timothy, it, you and your Christian service are like an athlete, and no athlete who goes to compete gets to compete whatever way they want. You only win the prize if you compete according to the rules. If I appear at the 100-meter sprint on a bicycle, you can imagine the looks that you would get from the other runners. What are you doing? I say, well, I thought, they, I thought the only aim was to get over the line as quick as I could. And I say, well, you can't just do whatever you want. There's a certain way that things have to be done. And in Christian leadership, there is a great temptation to get things done, whatever it takes. And yet, we have to avoid managing spiritual things with worldly measures. Paul is saying, Timothy, like an athlete, compete lawfully. Compete as God would have you do it. Make sure your ministry is faithful to how the Lord Jesus would have you do it. And then finally, the farmer. He says, uh, like a farmer, the hardworking farmer is the first to taste the crops. I don't think we have many farmers in the present. We do have plenty of people who do manual labor. And that's the phrase, manual labor, hard physical work that Paul uses often. It's one of Paul's favorite words. Difficult, tedious, prolonged work. Recently, I was helping someone rebuilding some scaffolding. And if you're someone like me who doesn't do manual labor, I've discovered that you go through three phases whenever you're doing manual labor. The first phase is, this is very interesting. Oh, look at this. I'm rebuilding scaffolding. After you've done it for a while, it stops being interesting because you're getting hit with things, you're sore, your muscles are aching, and you think, oh, this, this isn't interesting anymore. I wonder, could we go and do something else? Maybe we could go and, and, and put a few tiles on a roof or, or wire something up. 
And then the third phase comes whenever you look up and you see that the work just has to be done. And there's no shortcut for it. There's no easy way around it. You just have to dig in and knuckle down and do the hard work that is in front of you. Timothy, you are like a hard-working farmer. Because oftentimes in the Christian life, we have this assumption that if we're doing the right thing and we're doing it right, it will go easily for us. Christian service, Christian ministry, and especially for those in Christian leadership, is hard work. Long, difficult, and yet persevere. So Timothy, Paul says, if you want to endure, if you want to last, especially in the face of suffering and difficulty and hardship in Christian ministry, you need to have the single-minded focus of a soldier to avoid becoming entangled in the more appealing things of everyday life. You need to have the discipline of an athlete not to compromise on how you run. And you need to have the grit and the strength of a farmer to keep going even though the work is hard. Because ultimately, Timothy, the soldier is able to please the person who recruited him. The athlete is able to win the victor's crown, and the farmer gets the first taste of the crops. Think of these things, Timothy, and the Lord will give you understanding. And perhaps some of those characteristics we can see a need for in our own lives as we go about our Christian service. So, we come to the end of this section. Paul's advice to Timothy, especially in the light of facing suffering, what does he say? Firstly, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Secondly, entrust to faithful men what you have received from me. Thirdly, be prepared to face suffering. And remember the characteristics of the soldier and an athlete and a farmer as you do it. And finally, Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ. Look at him. Because Paul says, all the Christians in Asia have turned away from me. They've all betrayed me. Can you imagine Timothy being Paul's most loyal friend, still having to work in that environment? Can you imagine what was being said about Paul? If Paul's so great, how come God's let him end up in a Roman jail? Where is he now? Peter was put in jail. He didn't last the night. He was out. Where's Paul? Timothy, having to listen to that, perhaps that's the sort of thing that takes root. And that sort of grumbling can take root in your own mind as a Christian leader, perhaps. Why are the pews not full? Why are the people not responding? Why this? Why that? And Paul's response to that is, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Think of all of the weight of expectations that people had piled on his life, and look what happened. He ended up beaten, mocked, a laughing stock for Roman soldiers, crucified and left to die. What about that for suffering? By any human standard, that was a failure. By the standard that these people apply to my life, Timothy, he was a failure. And yet he is risen from the dead, and for his sake I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation 
that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. With eternal glory. Paul is saying, Timothy, we are not playing for 70 years and then we're out. We are playing on an eternal time scale. We are playing in a bigger picture. We are looking to an end that stretches beyond this world. At one point in his life, when you could look at Jesus Christ and think everything was a failure, everything had gone wrong, everything had had come apart, left to die on a cross, and yet, three days later, raised to life in triumph. So, Timothy, whatever you're facing, whether it's difficulty in, in Ephesus, whether it's persecution that you might face when you come to visit me in Rome, it's going to be a light and momentary affliction that is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Timothy, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Hand on to others the truth that you have received from me. Be ready to face suffering. And when you do, remember Jesus Christ.